This is my last broadcast as the anchor man of the President season. Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. We are said this is the day that shall live in infamy. We are living through another day of infamy for this country. Tonight we are a country awakened to danger and called to defend freedom. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Clandestine Radio, uncovering the truth. Thank you. Now watch this drive. Good evening, curious minds out there across the internet, and welcome to the Clandestine Radio Podcast. As always, I'm your host, DJ Joshua, and tonight begins our three-part series digging into the events of 9-11. So much has already been said about this event that at this point, I feel like most people either know enough to question the official story at least, or they simply don't want to know. Well, the anniversary only a little over a week behind us now, and considering I've been researching, writing, and podcasting about this event for over 20 years at this point, that Perhaps I should take a fresh look at it with all of you, present the old evidence, the new evidence I've recently discovered and has come out, as well as examine the repercussions of what truly happened in an honest and straightforward way, and see if together we may be able to come to some new conclusions. I'm also posting some documents and additional info on the Facebook page as we go along, so please be sure to follow us over there so you can also follow along with us as we attempt to unravel the true story of 9-11. I'll be up front with you. There's a chance that this could get our whole show taken down. I can say unequivocally, though, that the evidence I'm about to present to you has been well-researched and, to the best of my knowledge, is as factual as possible. Speaking the truth has always been more important to me than popularity or monetization and so I refuse to compromise about an event as significant as this one. So with that out of the way, let's begin tonight's show with a little bit of prelude and work our way through part one of this series. Thank you for joining me, as always. I hope you're doing well out there this evening, and I really hope that you enjoy what you're about to hear. It's going to be three parts to this, and each of them... Um, kind of a self-contained thing, but really, hopefully, I'll be able to paint a much bigger picture when they're all put together. I'm sure that a lot of this stuff is things that you've heard before. Um, There'll probably be a lot of new things that maybe you haven't heard, um, unless you really have been following this closely since it happened. It's been a passion of mine. This event was something that truly shook me to my core and made me question everything that I thought I knew about this country and the way that power functions in it. I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, it was truly my red pill moment, as I feel that it was for a whole lot of other people as well. A lot of friends that I know personally. Uh, you heard Steve-O the other night on the podcast saying that it was the same thing for him. It was really just such a catalyzing event that it it really shifted perspectives and, and painted a whole new picture of what was going on in the world. Um, I I think that everybody that watched that through, unless they were really drinking the Kool-Aid, had to at least at some point kind of question what they were seeing and what they were being told about it. Um, 
basically being told to deny your eyes and just trust what the media tells you. And I think that's the significant moment where myself and mainstream media essentially parted ways as far as trust goes. But without dragging on, let's get into part one of the prelude. So to properly tell this story, we need to go back a good ways before it. And there's going to be a prelude section up here up front that's going to be about, uh, I'd say, three different primary things that I really feel that we need to hit on in order to help you get a full picture of the events of 9-11. So I want to start with part one of this prelude, which is to tell you a little bit about Hegelian dialectic. Commonly simplified as problem-reaction-solution. sure you've probably heard that. Um, but that actually refers to a much more complex philosophical methodology. Hegelian refers to the 19th century German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Without boring you with a 30-minute dissertation on his work and phenomenology of spirit and fully breaking down his particular flavor of philosophical argument, I'll just move on to the second part dialectic and try to bring it all together for you defined as the art of investigating or discussing the truth of opinions many philosophers have developed their own methods for this um, plato notably but hegel's method can be best distilled down into thesis antithesis and synthesis and it's from that that we interpret the original simplification that we spoke about of thesis or to create a problem antithesis or Uh, to generate, study a reaction or opposition to that problem, and finally synthesis, or offering a solution to the original problem based upon the second step in the reaction. This is commonly used method not to determine truth in an argument, but usually it's used to manipulate public emotions and opinions and to subvert logical reasoning by controlling both sides of a situation essentially. To put it a little more simply, and to relate it back to the previous episodes, it's commonly done through a false flag, where a government essentially attacks itself, causing outrage against its chosen enemy, and thus responding in a way that it wanted to all along, but with the newly created support of the people. This is used frequently by those in power, and it's a tale as old as time. I could easily do a full episode just on false flags and i've taught and as you know they've come up several times so far already in the podcast but for the time being i just ask that you remember that term and how it is practically applied and used so the next thing that i wanted to discuss thing referred to as operation north woods and again i'm going to be posting all this kind of stuff i'm going to put a full document dump tonight um the link will be on the Facebook page, so be sure you go check that out as well and can reference back to that. So Operation Northwoods was a proposed top secret plan from 1962 and it was intended by through the Joint Chiefs of Staff to stage terrorist attacks including killing innocent civilians. The proposal included the use of flying drone aircraft into a building 
and detonating another one mid-flight, staging hijackings, staging attacks on U.S. vessels and facilities, staging riots as well as creating terror campaigns on U.S. soil. All of this in an effort to provoke war with Cuba. Essentially, it was a plan to stage false flag terrorist attacks inside the U.S. and abroad, and called for the CIA or other operatives to commit genuine acts of terrorism in the U.S., while making it look like it was Cuba doing it. Um, and, of course, that was in hopes of provoking a reaction out of Cuba and to justify U.S. military intervention. Just to touch on a few of the plans in a little more detail, and some of this gets completely insane, uh, but a military aircraft would be painted and numbered as an exact duplicate for a civilian aircraft, and they would then rendezvous south of Florida where the civilian aircraft would descend and be evacuated, while the repainted drone would continue uh, on the filed flight plan until it was over Cuba where it would begin broadcasting a mayday signal stating that it was under attack by Cuban aircrafts. The signal would be interrupted by its destruction triggered by a radio signal. The U.S. would then allow the air monitoring radio stations to tell the U.S. what happened rather than quote trying to sell the incident. Uh, they also planned jacking attempts against civil, air, and surface craft disguised as Cuban terrorists. Plans to blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. Um, which, it, I have to stop for just a second, because when I was in basic training in the military, a little thing happened, and this was just before 9-11, uh, called the attack on the USS Cole. I'm sure most of you have heard about this. I'm not sure how familiar any of you are actually with it. Um, but that always made me think of that. And, and when it happened, it was so surreal. The base kind of went into lockdown. Uh, we elevated to like a code orange, I think it was. And uh, people were not allowed in or off the base except under like strict conditions. Um, and they wouldn't give us any kind of details about it. We didn't hear anything more than anyone else. We probably heard, honestly, less than anyone else was hearing on the news because we couldn't even watch that. Uh, basically, just got a vague description of what was going on. Years later, uh, after I got out and started kind of looking into this stuff post 9-11, that attack always kind of stood out to me as, as interesting. That, that's all I'm going to say about it. I just found it very interesting. Anyways, as well as staging fires and mortar attacks on U.S. bases to cause actual damage to the installations and personnel, this and much more is contained in the declassified document, which again I'm going to have posted for you uh, to go check out and you can read over all of it. I'll put the link up on the Facebook page after this show. And all of this, if not for JFK rejecting the plan, it would have happened. Uh, this is just one tiny glimpse into how the military-industrial complex and the CIA think and the depths to which they will go to accomplish their goals, essentially. Um, so before you say no, my government would never do something like that. That's crazy. Uh, but just implore you to research some and go back through history and, and think about all the false flag attacks and everything that really has happened that you would not in a million years believe would have happened. Now, before we get into, um, I guess, more along the timeline of events and, and kind of start unraveling this story in a more linear fashion, uh, I just wanted to kind of, I put together a little thing here where I wanted to talk about following the money. 
I guess that would probably be a good title for this particular section. But in, in the year leading up to 9-11, I'm sure a lot of you guys probably remember Rumsfeld's announcement. Uh, some of you guys probably never heard it or, or were unaware of it, may still be unaware of it, um, because the very next day something much more important happened and it basically got deleted from the news cycle conveniently. But uh, in, in the year leading up to 9-11, the Department of Defense began quietly discussing its inability to track roughly $2.3 trillion. Under increasing pressure for answers and accountability on September 10th, 2001, on a Monday, mind you, which uh, for those of you who follow these kind of things, that, that should kind of stand out as odd considering that the, the type of bad news announcements, we'll say, they virtually always are done on a Friday afternoon. And I, and I guess that's kind of in hopes that pressure dissipates and uh, weekend's distractions kind of lessen the blowback before the following Monday when they have to deal with that kind of thing. But nonetheless, on Monday, September 10th, Donald Rumsfeld took to a darkened press room to announce officially that the Pentagon was unable to track $2.3 trillion in transactions. And this would have been the lead story all week, most likely, had it not been for the events of the following day, obviously. Uh, the department primarily responsible for accounting for the, quote, error would be Res Resource Services Washington, which is an internal department located inside of the Pentagon. At that time, it was comprised of around 65 civilian accountants, bookkeepers, budget analysts, uh, and also located in this particular area of the Pentagon is the Navy Operations Center and the office complex of the National Guard Army Reserve. Uh, being it was near the end of the fiscal year at that time, uh, all kinds of important budget information, documents, lots of it would be stored throughout that area in, in those departments. For now, I just want you to put a pin in that, okay? Remember, everything I just told you, I promise it will come back up real soon. Now, I want to talk about one more piece of financial jargon called a put option. This is done when a person expects to buy a stock at a lower price at a later date while simultaneously exercising the option to sell that same stock for the contracted higher price uh, within the term period for that option. It's a type of speculative trading, if you will, and it basically boils down to betting that a stock will fail um, during that, that time period, that option period. It, other way, it, it's profiteering off of uh, a bet that a stock will fall, essentially. Other ways of profiting off a soon-to-fail stock are short selling and just selling a, a known stock before an anticipated sharp decline actually occurs. And these are all legal moves. They're just frequently used tactics for insider trading. I have all the documentation for what I'm about to share with you, and as I mentioned, I'll be sharing some of it on our Facebook page this week. As I work out a good way to make kind of like a, a single document location where I can do document dumps for shows like this, where I can just go ahead and put all the documentation or a lot of it out there and allow you guys, uh, if you'd be so interested, to dig through it at your leisure and see if you come to the same conclusions that I come to and I'm basing the information that I share with you off of. According to CBS News, and can also be verified by pouring over trade documents from this time, uh, there's lots of books that have already done that. There was, and I quote, a 
jump in American Airlines put options of 90 times, not percent, times above average between September 6th and 10th, 285 times higher on the Thursday before the attacks. A jump in American Airlines put options 60 times above normal on the day before the attacks. As stated by Bloomberg Business News, and this could very well be insider trading at the worst, most horrific, most evil use you've ever seen in your entire life. And that's what Bloomberg Business News said about it, okay? It's also been suggested that gold, oil, and treasury bonds should be further investigated. The 9-11 Commission dismissed the activity, stating that while unusual, it was a quote, unnamed institutional investor with no ties to Al-Qaeda who bought 95% of the UAL put options on September 6th and they called it quote innocuous. We could dig much deeper and talk about how one large UAL put order was sent to CBOE floor in the days before 9-11 by a single Deutsche Bank customer who split it into chunks of 500 contracts each and directed each chunk to various exchanges around the country simultaneously. Literally, unprecedented trades were recorded at Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, and others. But this topic is truly a rabbit hole into itself and one that goes staggeringly deep. And while we're on the topic of rabbit holes, another interesting fact that I found, though it's been widely quote unquote debunked. I really wish there was a way for you guys to hear my air quotes, by the way. Was gold being looted the night before 9-11? When I first investigated the story, I spoke with several New Yorkers, and a lot of them all had similar stories about this. Some told me that they saw unmarked armored trucks leaving the tunnels late in the night on September 10th to early in the morning September 11th. Some say they believe it happened even well before this. Most notably, there is actually a photo of an armored truck filled with gold that got stuck trying to exit the tunnels under the towers, and then it got crushed subsequently under some rubble. And that's been largely scrubbed from the internet. I don't know, some of you guys who have dug into this a little bit or followed the story closely at the time <laughs> were actually alive then. Um, you may have seen that picture or heard a little bit about it, but um, it, it's almost impossible to find anything about it now, just for the record. And while it's widely said that the vaults are actually under the stock exchange near Canal Street, there absolutely were vaults located in the basement of the Twin Towers. Official statements say that while an attempt was made by quote-unquote looters, all of the gold was recovered. Chances are we will never know the whole truth about all this though. It's just another interesting question to consider and another kind of anomalous thing that occurred on that day. So before we get into actually talking about the event somewhat, or at least into the main players of that event, there's one more little bit of prelude that I wanted to talk about and that is the project for a new American century. Some of you guys have probably heard about this, especially, like I said, if you followed the story at all. And again, this is another thing that I have all the documentation for, and I will be posting that as well. Essentially, it was a neocon think tank focused in U.S. foreign policy, uh, founded by none other than Dick Cheney, 
Bill Crystal, and Roger Keegan. Of the 25 people who signed their founding statement, 10 of them went on to serve in the Bush administration. In September 2000, the PNAC, Project for a New American Century, so we'll refer to it from here forward, it's just PNAC, released a report titled, Rebuilding America's Defenses, um, promoting the belief that America should seek to preserve and extend its position of global leadership by maintaining the preeminence of U.S. military forces, and stated, quote, advanced forms of biological warfare that can target specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. Go ahead and log that back for a future episode. I found that really interesting when reading back through this document. But anyways, also in this report they called for a regime change in Iraq, of course, along with the core tenets needed for U.S. global domination. It stated that, and I quote, Further the process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. Unsurprisingly, one of the key signers of this document is Paul Wolfowitz, and... I have the PDF of this entire document, so this is absolutely what was said. And I know it's been commonly quoted in probably every conspiracy documentary about 9-11, but there's a good reason for that, because it very clearly outlines what they're calling for and what they think they need in, you know, the the year and years predating 9-11, and essentially saying that outside of something like 9-11... Um, and then it happens and they get exactly what they want which is regime change in Iraq all fits together rather nicely and this is all publicly available from the archives and from other sources across the internet that you can get on and read this and other documents like this and pretty much everything that the PNAC put out but for now let's go ahead and look a little bit deeper at the events of 9-11 and its main players. Before I go any further, um, I feel it is important to say that since my intentions with this show is to give you the facts of any situation or story and, you know, occasionally share my thoughts with you here and there, but allow you to come to your own conclusions rather than just give you pure conjecture and spin and, you know, steer you towards a decision or an outcome that I feel is is the correct one all the time. Um, I, I don't want to box things into a neatly fitting narrative with this and claim that I know for a fact what really happened on 9-11 because I don't think that any of us do. I'll leave that job to the talking heads in the media who love to speculate and tell you what to think, that's not what I'm here for. My intentions with this are actually just to lay out a functional timeline of sorts to the best of my ability, and to remember those that we lost, of course, and hopefully get some feedback and thoughts from you guys on it as we go along. And when we get to the end, hopefully you'll have a clearer picture of everything that happened. Hopefully I'm able to present some things that you haven't heard yet or didn't know about. 
and maybe you know together we can kind of work out what really happened so in the time before the attack several problems with the narrative stand out first i want to take a look at the hijackers within 24 hours after september 11 the fbi had released its first list of the 19 hijackers which was incredibly inaccurate and modified several times but if it were accurate it would be the most efficient and expedient work ever done by our government i'll just say that before i dig into the main players though let's take just a second to talk about something called project able danger which was a classified project led by the US Special Operations Command SOCOM and Defense Intelligence Agency or the DIA and it was created on directive from the Joint Chiefs of Staff in early October 1999 the intent was to develop an informational operations campaign plan against transnational terrorism according to statements given by Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer and four others within the project Able Danger had identified two of the three Al-Qaeda cells involved in 9/11, including naming Mohammed Atta and three of the other alleged hijackers well in advance of the attacks, nearly a year in fact, in September of 2000, and he alerted the FBI at that time. He also alleged that three meetings he set up with bureau officials were blocked by military lawyers. Schaefer would also allege that the CIA opposed Able Danger prior to 9/11 based on the view that it was encroaching on CIA turf basically that they wouldn't share the information that they had uh, others who supported Schaefer in this claims were Navy Captain Scott Philpot a civilian contractor who worked with the project named James D Smith and Major Eric Kleinsmith who was ordered to delete 2.5 terabytes of data on it in May and June of 2000 on the orders of Tony Gentry the general counsel of the Army Intelligence and Securities Command for reference guys 2.5 terabytes could easily hold the entire contents of the US Library of Congress and then some that's a whole lot of data full disclosure Schaefer only turned whistleblower in October of uh 03 while refuting claims of misconduct made while he was he was under investigation stemming from his service in Afghanistan the 11 commission failed to mention or consider his claims the pentagon ordered uh five key witnesses not to even testify to the commission that had information on project able danger during their investigation According to his attorney, Schaefer's security clearance and access to classified information was revoked, and he was placed on administrative leave shortly after it became known that he had provided info to the commission uh, regarding Able Danger. Later, the U.S. Intelligence Committee concluded that Able Danger did not identify Mohammed Atta or any other hijackers prior to 9/11. They came to this conclusion despite five blocked witnesses and 2.5 terabytes from the project being deleted prior to their investigation. Uh, it all that's some very interesting stuff too and while I don't have just like a particular document on able danger I mean I, I could download it I could post it and it's pictures and photos of the terrorists and trying to connect the cells and whatnot uh, to really get a, a better picture I would advise you just kind of do your own research on it I wouldn't so much just trust something like I don't know, Wikipedia or something like that and think that you're gonna get the full picture 
check multiple sources and, and kind of compile what fits of that information. And, you know, it, it paints a picture. Was Schaefer just a straight up, you know, great stand up guy? No, I, I don't think that he, he necessarily was. But I also don't think that he only said what he said in retaliation because he was being investigated. I think that it goes a lot deeper than that. But I did want to be, you know, completely honest with the situation so that, it, you know, I'm not concealing any information or, or trying to bend it to fit the narrative. I think we need to go ahead and move on to the hijackers at this point. And in the interest of time, I guess, and, and not boring the hell out of all of you any more than I probably already have here, I'm just going to briefly go over a few inconsistencies in the narrative regarding the 19 alleged hijackers. First, I just want to say that then FBI Director Mueller even admitted himself that his case against the hijackers would likely never stand up in a court of law. And still to this day, that case has yet to be tried. Uh, there's still people waiting to go to trial that are being held in Guantanamo Bay that they're not even sure how they're going to prosecute them. So uh, it's, it's very interesting. The more you dig into the hijackers, the, the crazier the story actually gets. But to go through all 19 of them in detail and, and pointing out all the inconsistencies and allegedly missed opportunities that the FBI had to apprehend these guys well in advance of the attacks it would take us all night and involve uh, probably a frustrating amount of mispronounced names, to be perfectly honest with you. Here's the brief rundown based on verifiable evidence that you can easily fact check for yourself. Two of the terrorists, bear with me on the pronunciations again guys, but Khalid Al-Mintar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi were known to both the CIA and the FBI and both agencies were aware in March of 2000 that they had traveled to Los Angeles back in January of that year. They then moved to San Diego to live with a former FBI uh, informant and former FBI suspect. Like I said, that active, long-time, and reliable FBI informant. Recently uncensored documents from the Guantanamo military commission in charge of handling the cases of the hijackers commenced the account of former DEA agent Dan Canestraro, who was made principal investigator for the commission. He reportedly found that Al-Mintar and Al-Hazmi were working closely with the CIA and were likely hired long before the attacks. It's fair to mention that despite being repeatedly recognized by the CIA and NSA as potential Al-Qaeda terrorists prior to their arrival in January of 2000, they entered on multiple entry visas. The man who the pair allegedly just randomly at the airport met that January that then immediately co-signed their first lease and gave them 1500 towards their rent uh, he also helped set them up in San Diego and introduced them to Anwar Alaki, was Omar Al-Bujami, a Saudi intelligence agent. The document also mentions another FBI agent who asserts that the CIA helped Bujami with opening a bank account for the two hijackers in San Diego and got them their apartment lease. Canestraro does not draw any inferences as to why the CIA withheld crucial information from the FBI prior to the attacks, which may have prevented their execution, or why the FBI subsequently cooperated with the agency's cover-up. The belief, however, is that, at the very least, 
The CIA was working hand-in-hand with Saudi intelligence to recruit Hosni and Mintar as informants. They would go on to supposedly help Hani Hanjour hijack Flight 77 before Hanjour allegedly flew it into the Pentagon. We will get back to that in a minute, though. Speaking of Hani Hanjour, and this guy is a story in and of himself, Short and slight, quiet and introverted, and apparently so shy he wouldn't even tell a Florida family that he was staying with that he forgot his toothbrush. His family couldn't make sense of his involvement. His older brother stated in an interview that he was in shock and thought that he always liked the USA, going on to say he was in no way Al-Qaeda and he would think that he would be the one to give his life to save lives rather than what he did. He arrived on a student visa years before any of the others uh, to study at the University of Arizona in 1991. Over five years, Hanjour bounced around uh, different flight schools and airplane rental companies, but his instructors always regarded him as a poor student, even in the weeks before the attacks. Uh, According to the 9-11 Commission, he obtained a pilot's commercial license in April of 99, but how in the hell he did it and where he did this uh, remains to be seen, and it, uh, it's honestly a question that the FAA officials refuse to discuss. One of his instructors was quoted as saying he, quote, had only the barest understanding of what the instruments were there to do, and another called him a, quote, weak student who was wasting their resources, and apparently told him he would never make it as an airplane pilot. By the second week of August 2001, just weeks out from 9-11, he pops up at Freeway Airport in Washington, where his instructors once again question his competence. After three sessions in a single-engine plane, the school decided he was not ready to fly even that without an instructor present. A few weeks later, though, this guy somehow skilled enough to pilot a 757 full of passengers and pull off a near impossible turn that even the best and bravest of pilots wouldn't even dare attempt, leveling the plane out only inches off the ground and slamming it into a very specific, which we will get into shortly, spot on the side of the Pentagon. One of the most highly controlled airspaces in the country, if not the world. And that's just uh, a tiny, tiny snip of the irregularities about what happened at the Pentagon. But like I said, uh, we're going to get into that in more detail, and we're going to talk about uh, each one of the flights, what happened with them, um, their impacts, and then break down how things occurred over the day at the Twin Towers, um, what was going on at the Pentagon, Uh, Was there ever even a plane in Pennsylvania? And more. And all that's coming up in part two of our discussion on 9-11, where we're going to really cover the day of, for the most part. And then our third part, we're going to be going and talking a lot more about uh, the repercussions of it and other newer anomalies that I've found that I think you guys might be interested in. And that's how we're going to roll from here uh, into October. So, like I said, I'm, I apologize. Last week, um, had some family emergency going on and I, I just wasn't able, I, I did not have the time or the ability to finish writing and record everything that I needed to for the show. So I felt it best to just go ahead, 
and skip that one and then do a full show this week instead of doing an off the record or something like that. Uh, but do a full show this week and then do another full show next week. No off the record next week. Um, it's going to be another full episode on this continuing in part two. And then the following week, we're going to do one more full episode uh, finishing everything up with this. And that will lead us into our little break that's coming up in October. I hope that you guys will interact with these episodes um, after them. There'll be some questions, or at least a question, a Q&A down there. There'll be a poll. Um, and, of course, you can always leave me a voice message. But that stuff really helps. I, I want this to be a more open discussion than just, you know, me telling you a whole bunch of boring facts about 9-11 or me trying to build a narrative for you. I I'd want to present this evidence as open and honest as I possibly can. There's so much to it, though. There's so many anomalies. There's no way I can, I can even in that three-part series, hope to literally cover everything that happened. I, I mean, there's and there's other things that I'm not well-versed on, perhaps, and, and things that I'm sure I'll miss along the way, but there's so much to it. Uh, that it, it's just impossible to really cover it and, and build it into any sort of a cohesive narrative because there's so many different ways you could look at what happened and, and who it benefited and how it was accomplished and just the craziness, the anomalous impossibilities of what happened that day. They're numerous. So now that I've used a bunch of big words, I, uh, I wanted to remind you once again, um, please use the polls, use the Q&A, Leave me a voice mention. Let's discuss this. I would love to know what you guys think about it. Were you alive when this happened? Were you, uh, you know, old enough to, to remember it going on? Did you see the second plane hit live? Were you curious about this at all when it happened? Or did you just completely get swept up in the patriotism and the narrative that the news was giving you and, and go right along with it? Or what about the weapons of mass destruction? What about the, uh, the assault and, and everything that went on as we moved into the Middle East, uh, destabilizing Saddam's regime and everything that went along with that, which, you know, now I think in retrospect, we see that Saudi intelligence, if nothing else, had something to do with 9-11, but it had nothing to do with Saddam and his weapons of mass destruction. It feels progressively more and more as time goes on that it was pretty obviously just used as a pretext to invade Iraq and to accomplish the goals that we had set out years before to accomplish, to finish what um, Bush Sr. started and do more as well. But that's just my personal thoughts. And I thought I'd share those here at the end since there's not going to be, you know, a quote off the record next week. Um, I just kind of wanted to give you a little mind recap what's going on in my head about what I've talked about so far. And, and give you a little bit of a preview about what's coming up very soon so that you kind of have an idea of what to expect. And, you know, so it's not just straight fact after fact in a boring fashion. I want to break it up a little bit. So at the end of all these, I'm going to kind of give you my thoughts, uh, at least a little bit on, on what I covered and kind of a little bit about what's coming up to just so... You know, I'm starting the conversation, I guess you could say. And, and I hope that you guys will participate in it. And again, uh, go to the Facebook page. I'll have some documents that I spoke about from tonight. Uh, if I can't get those uploaded and hosted somewhere that I think will work great for everybody before 
this goes live, then I will at least go ahead and, and get screenshots of some of the more pertinent things and try and get as much of this documentation up for you on the page. And you can also go there and feel free to participate in the discussion. Um, that's why I built that page. That's why I wanted that to be a, a little kind of community hub for us so that you guys, uh, and you're very important to me, by the way, I do this for you. This is not for my benefit. This is why I don't do any kind of monetization. I'm not selling ads. I'm not doing anything like that. This is simply a place where I can put information out there. I can tell fun stories and I can interact with you guys and, and give another option to what's out there. And I'm sure there's, you know, limitless amounts of podcasts and, and other avenues of entertainment for you to be using your time. So the fact that you come here hopefully every week and spend a little bit of time of that, your precious time with me, really does mean the world. And I can't thank you enough for it. Again, come see the Facebook page. Let's talk. Let's interact. I check in there frequently. I answer every message. And um, I will be posting progressively more relevant, cool, and interesting things there as time goes on. So go ahead and give it a follow. It helps the show. It helps me. And uh, hopefully in the long run, it'll help you too. Thanks again for joining us. I'll talk to you real soon on the next Clandestine Radio. Uncovering the truth, exploring the unknown. The unknown.